Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Chicago's Legal Latte, a series of podcasts brought to you by Lavelle Law Limited. Throughout this series, the attorneys from Lavelle Law will share their answers to questions about a variety of topics for individuals and small businesses. To participate in today's discussion, you can email us at podcast at lavellelaw.com. We've visited a, a number of legal topics in, in recent podcasts, uh, focusing our attention uh, all over the board on different areas of law. Today, we're going to concentrate on an issue that pertains primarily to business transactions, but uh, I anticipate we're going to learn that the uh, uh, a lot more about the full extent of the subject. Hi, everybody. This is Jim Mitchell, and we're going to cover a key legal tactic today that, that, frankly, I don't think we've taken a look at in any of our past podcasts, so always glad we can tackle something new. Today, the, the topic will be uh, the letter of intent. We'll uh, learn not only what one is, what it's used for, but um, perhaps talk about what might make one more effective than another in the process. Uh, providing the detail for our discussion today will be attorney Ted McGinn. Ted's a partner at Lavelle Law. He's joined me a number of times on the podcast, and um, it's been a while since he was here to visit, so I'm happy to welcome him back. And, Ted, nice to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time today. Well, thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. And we're going to start, you know, as we often do, just at the most basic level, you know, definition-type work here. What is a letter of intent from a from a legal perspective? Well, a letter of intent is a typically a short document, maybe one, two pages at at the most, that is going to summarize the major terms of a prospective business transaction. It's not going to deal with everything. It's not going to uh, encompass every issue that's going to be encountered over the course of the deal, but it's just going to mm-hmm. cover the major material uh, parameters of the transaction. And, and are there certain types of, of uh, business deals or transactions that might be best utilized uh, or might best utilize a letter of intent? Yeah, I mean, usually those transactions that are larger uh, that are going to involve uh, a number of, of major components, and a letter of intent is used to kind of, you know, just just help you know lay out the framework for both parties so they can understand, make sure they're on the same page. You ordinarily see them in business transactions, whether it's an asset purchase agreement or maybe a stock purchase agreement, but also you see them quite commonly in major commercial lease transactions. Any sort of business deal where there's going to be, uh, you know, you've got some major terms that the parties want to make sure that they are on the same page before they start spending a lot of money on due diligence and attorneys. Uh, and the, that's the last thing they want to do is waste money only to find out later on that they don't really have an agreement on the larger major material terms of the deal. Okay. And it's, it's, uh, you're kind of leading into some of the other things I want to talk about because you mentioned you know understanding the terms, but at the same time, I, I think you heard you say at the beginning, it's a, maybe a one- or two-page document. So how, how detailed would a letter of intent get? I mean, would it just talk in specifics about certain terms? Would it discuss financials or, or other items? What would be in there? Yeah, you're going to have like uh, you know uh, like the purchase price. If you're in the case of a, a some sort of a purchase agreement or asset purchase deal, you're going to have what is the purchase price. Also, what are the terms of the of the of the, of the deal? Is the buyer going to pay in a single lump sum payment, or maybe the buyer is going to bring a portion of it 
at closing, and the rest would be financed either through a bank loan or quite often seller financing. Um, you know, maybe there's some other major issues like the seller is going to remain on in some sort of capacity after the deal is over with. But, um, you know, aside from that, you're not going to get in too much detail as to uh, some of the nitty-gritty terms that you would already, already see in, in a larger document. You're just going to have the major pieces of the deal. Mm-hmm. So when those pieces are there, um, do they become binding, or is it simply uh, an agreement that says we want to talk about these things, here's what we sort of both think it's going to be, but if anything changes, nobody can, can walk away? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good question, Jim. I mean, you want to, you know, before you're going to ask to sign a letter of intent, that's the first question you should ask yourself, is this a binding letter of intent? Now, I would say ordinarily they are not binding, just kind of by definition, um, however, you want to make sure that's clear. You know, you, you, if, if you're, uh, I mean, if you're a buyer and you're going to, you know, you want to engage in possible transaction, you want to be able to do your due diligence and make sure that you understand exactly what you're getting into. So the last thing you want to do is, is sign a, a one or two page letter of intent that is binding upon you. And then later on, you, you do your due diligence only to realize that maybe this is not uh, what you actually want to acquire. You find out something about the business that you don't like. Maybe maybe customers aren't going to be there as, as reliably as you expected. So there could be a number of reasons why you don't want to do the deal. If you're stuck in a binding letter of intent, that, just, that could create some problems for you. Now, I imagine looking at the different uses that we sort of outlined a little bit, there might be instances in which um, two parties are, are, are looking at a deal, and, and in no way is it exclusive, or they're agreeing to purchase goods or services, and, and many people might do that from the same vendor. I assume in other cases, maybe a real estate transaction, it, it would be somewhat exclusive, which says, you know, we want to sell this property, you want to buy this property. If you have a letter of intent in that situation, does that prevent let's say, the seller from negotiating with somebody else at the same time? Does it sort of exclude other options while it's in force? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. I, I, I mean, there's always a duty to act in good faith. I mean, let, let's say that. I mean, both parties mm-hmm. should act in good faith towards one another. But if a letter of intent does not expressly indicate otherwise, then parties are free to you know, engage when discussions with other parties and that could be the seller trying to entertain other potential buyers or even the buyer looking at other potential acquisitions. Um, well, if I represent a seller or uh, excuse me, if I represent a buyer and I'm, you know, concerned about that, I may try to negotiate in my letter of intent what, what is known as a no shopping clause. That's a clause, a, a provision you put in the agreement that would provide that, you know, during the term of the letter of intent, the seller is prohibited from engaging in other discussions. Why is a clause important? Well, if I'm the buyer and I'm going to start due diligence, I may, you know, be incurring some costs in connection with that due diligence. I may be hiring a, a CPA to come in and review financial statements. I may be hiring other clinical experts to come in and look at a particular business. Uh, you know, if, if in the case of real estate, you may be, uh, you know, conducting environmental audits of the property. There's all kinds of different, you know, forms of due diligence that you may be engaged in, de- depending on the nature of the transaction. But any of those 
types of due diligence uh, steps could cause you to incur a fair amount of costs, the last thing you want to have happen to you then is that you, uh, you, know, you, you, you incur these costs, and then the seller finds, later on decides, well, I'm going to sell it to somebody else, sorry. So a no shopping clause is kind of uh, something you may want to consider if you're a buyer in a transaction like this with a letter of intent. Now, I, I think I heard you mention what I would call a, a calendar term here, which, you know, that says the the letter is in effect for a certain period of time. Is that is that standard that uh, you would see in these type of agreements? Typically, typically, I mean, if, if you're the seller, the last thing you know, you, you want to you you want to have some sort of time frame where you know this buyer is either going to proceed and and, and close on the deal. Or the buyer is not going to do it, and we're going to move on and, and try to find somebody else. Uh, in addition, what kind of is related to this issue is earnest money. Earnest money is some, you know, something that's deposited, usually with a broker, to demonstrate to the seller the buyer is serious about this transaction. Uh, but usually, in these non-binding letter of intent. The earnest money is refundable. You know, if I'm a buyer, I don't want to deposit a large amount of money without me being comfortable with this transaction. I'm going to want, like I said, I'm going to engage in due diligence, really get in there, inspect the business, understand what I'm getting into. I don't want to deposit earnest money that is non-refundable uh, if I haven't engaged in due diligence. So I would always include that the deposit is refundable if I see something in the business that I don't like. I want to be able to back out of the deal. Um, mm-hmm. But the seller wants a time frame on it. They're not going to want to have it sit out there indefinitely. They're going to want to have a, a time frame for this buyer to finish their due diligence. So if either they're going to do a deal or they're not, and they can move on. Um, I'm talking with attorney Ted McGinn of Lavelle Law on the podcast today. Ted's a uh, partner at the firm, has spoken to us on issues involving businesses, health law, and, and other topics over the years. Um, he comes to us with a background in accounting, has served as an adjunct professor at the John Marshall Law School and uh, previously chaired committees at the Chicago Bar Association. So he uh, is well-credentialed to certainly support our conversations on, on the podcast from time to time. He's uh, presented seminars on multiple business topics uh, and uh, frequently hosts uh, seminars to, to help with uh, potential clients and business associates. So it's our, our good fortune to have him here. Um, Ted, as we continue on the conversation, we're talking about letters of intent today and uh, the role they play in, in certain uh, agreements. Um, it, we, we spoke earlier about what's included and, and whether or not they're binding. Um, so as as these move forward, then it's it's likely that there's a fair amount of negotiation and, and, and investigation that goes on. Tell me about due diligence. You've mentioned a little bit. Um, I assume both sides assume it's going to happen, and that's as you said, generally done in uh, in good faith, knowing that um, you know both sides have to be comfortable. So that's that's a standard part of these these types of deals. Yeah, I, absolutely, absolutely. You want to have a right for the buyer to engage in due diligence. They want to understand exactly what they're getting into. If it's an asset deal, you know, maybe you're not as worried about the liabilities, but you want to make sure that uh, the asset that you're going to be acquiring, uh, they're going to conform with what the seller described them to be. Uh, On a stock deal, 
due diligence is really important because any sort of liabilities that may exist with respect to this business, those are going to be liabilities that you're going to have to deal with. Now, you can certainly try to put language in the stock purchase agreement that protects you and, 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 and requires a seller to identify you. But if that seller is gone and not around and can't be located and you bought the stock, you're going to have to deal with whatever that issue that, that, that is there. So the due diligence is very important so you completely understand what you're getting into and, and, and make sure it's, uh, you know, it's consistent with what you expect. And then the economic terms still make sense based on what you're going to get. Now, there's one other thing I want to bring up with due diligence, and this is, goes towards the seller side. I mean, certainly it's reasonable for the buyer to want the due, dil- due diligence, but the same token, the seller wants to be concerned as well. They want to make sure that the information they're turning over to the buyer is going to be protected. Uh, many times a buyer could be in competition with the seller, or the buyer could move on and buy perhaps a different company that is going to be competing with the seller. So the seller wants to be protected, and the way to do that is to be sure that the letter of intent includes non-disclosure or confidentiality provisions. That would then obligate the buyer to not use any information that they obtain in the course of the due diligence against the seller in competition or for any reason other than to uh, complete the, the transaction in question. So, it, you know, as we wrap up here, one more thing for you. When we first started talking and you described it as a short document that, you know, is important but, but non-binding, I almost had this sense that, oh, the two parties get together, maybe they could just kind of hammer this out on their own and, and agree between themselves on, on what the letter might include. But as we talk more, it sounds pretty much to me like you, you want an attorney to do this for you. Even though it's a, a preliminary document, it's it's one you don't want to get wrong. Yeah, I agree. You definitely want a lawyer involved. I mean, I've had situations where parties come to me after the letter of intent is signed and the buyer has deposited earnest money, but they deposit it with the seller. And then for some reason, the deal doesn't happen and they go back to the seller and they want the money and the seller says, oh, sorry, the money's spent. So, you know, crazy things like that do happen. I think it's always prudent to get an attorney involved so the buyer or the seller, whatever the case may be, can be guided properly and, and both sides protected. Well, good advice as always. And Ted McGinn of Lavelle Law has been the guest today. I certainly appreciate him being here. Always uh, grateful when he takes time to join us. Uh, To touch base with him in the future, you can simply reach out at 847-705-7555 or email tmcginn at Lavelle Law. And lavellelaw.com is a website where you can always pick up uh, uh, so much information, not only about Ted's background, his practice, and read past articles, listen to prior podcasts, watch videos. We've got it all available for you at lavellelaw.com. And, of course, we do our best to share information with you on a weekly basis, and we'll look forward to having you back with us again next week.